Did you know that you can find just about all of our podcast episodes? We've done more than 60 now on our website. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, Brooke Jarvis, David Gran, Tom Junot, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I talk with Bryn Jonathan Butler. Butler wrote the book, The Grand Master, Magnus Carlsen, and the Match That Made Chess Great Again, which will be released on November 6th. The book takes a look at the 2016 World Chess Championship, which was held in New York City just before the 2016 election. It also dives deep into the type of personality needed to be a chess champion. Uh, I've been a massive fan of obsessive geniuses all my life, so I saw elements of Bobby Fischer certainly in Magnus Carlsen, which, which he confirmed in some of his interviews. I saw a lot of Glenn Gould back from my native Canada in, in what he's doing. Is a, is a chess player more like a great composer? Magnus is compared to Mozart all the time, or is it more like a Glenn Gould who masters an instrument? His first book, The Domino Diaries, was shortlisted for the Penn ESPN Award for Literary Sports Writing and was a Boston Globe Best Book of 2015. Yeah, I was working some weird, odd jobs along the way, but all the money I had was, was put towards going to Cuba and being trained by Olympic champions and uh, indulging in my total fascination with what Cuba was from the first time I went in 2000 until what I thought was the last time I'd be able to go, which was when bin Laden was killed in 2011. Butler's story, Ghost of Capablanca, which was published by Southwest, the magazine, was included in the 2018 Best American Travel Writing Book. He's also been a notable selection in that book, as well as Best American Sports Writing, multiple times. He's written for Esquire, Bloomberg, ESPN the Magazine, Playboy, Harper's, The Paris Review, and Roads and Kingdoms, among others. As usual, we've linked to Butler's books and other stories that he has written on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Brian, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, I'm excited to be having uh, having you on the show um, this week. We're we're going to be uh, you know we'll be pushing this interview out um, pretty close to the day your book, The Grand Master, comes out. Um, published by Simon and Schuster, I believe. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Um, to start things off, can you can you tell us a little bit about the Grand Master? Uh, the Grand Master began in 2016. Uh, almost exactly two years ago when I was asked by Simon and Schuster to cover the World Chess Championship that was here in New York between Magnus Carlsen and Sergei Karyakin. Uh, Donald Trump had just been elected 36 hours before, so the backdrop was uh, literally pinatas of Trump being beaten around outside of Trump Towers uh, just at the bottom of Central Park. Uh, it was just a, a wild scene, and it felt like New York was in a collective nervous breakdown or Titanic had hit the glacier, and pretty much the only place where people weren't talking about politics 
and Trump was at in the games room of the Titanic, which was the World Chess Championship. So it was a very surreal, bizarre thing to cover. And Putin himself had set, sent very high-level political operatives to support Sergei Kiryakin. So it almost had this sort of modernized Cold War backdrop that Bobby Fischer had back with Boris Spassky in 1972. Mm-hmm. So that's where it began. Right. And so uh, part of this, and, and this is really interesting, and, and you address this in the book, which I, which I really enjoyed, um, uh, the, the publisher actually reached out to you. It's not like this was something that um, you were, you know, had written up a book proposal and were sending it around or, you know, having an agent represent you. What was that like for you as a, as a writer? It was preposterous because, as, <laughs> as you know, it never happened. Right. I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. You know, normally we're pitching endless ideas and they're shooting them down and you say, please tell me what you want. Well, no, I'm not here to tell you what I want. I want to hear more of your ideas. It's sort of the the rat race that we're in. So to have an editor reach out to me to say, I saw you had a profile photo on Twitter where you're playing chess. Uh, I'm sure you know that the World Chess Championships are going on just a few miles south of where you live. I thought it was like a Nigerian prince email scam. <laughs> I, I really couldn't believe that it was real, and I followed up on it immediately. And still, you know, talking to the guy on the phone, I'm waiting for what the scam is, because this can't be real. And within three days from that initial email, I switched agents, signed a contract, and was the only journalist who was covering it who was given VIP access, which, again, is something I've never had. I've never had special access to anything. I... I began auxiliary covering everything and had to sort of weasel my way into stuff. So it was a very bizarre thing to have the calling card of Simon Schuster um, really having people open doors for me to this. So it it was just figure out how to do it. I don't have a background in chess. I didn't have kids. I mean, I have a background of playing a little bit. One of my first jobs as a kid was hustling chess. Um, outside the art gallery in Vancouver, which was sort of Vancouver's answer to Washington Square Park, where Stanley Kubrick and Bobby Fischer and many, many chess players coming up in New York, that's where they would play and and hustle speed chess, which was my game, not formal chess. Um, So it was just trying to figure out, really not trying to write a insider's game about chess for the outside world, but but really trying to write an outsider's look into chess as a subculture, which is something I'm much more comfortable with, um, dealing with obsessives, dealing with eccentrics, uh, a milieu that is, um, on the one hand, feeling really insular and strange and eccentric, but on the other hand, this is something that 600 million people on Earth do. So if it was a religion, it would be the third or fourth largest on Earth. So there were there was just a lot of elements to grab onto and, and just a lot of learning that I had to do. I immediately, once I'd signed the contract, uh, bought 40 chess books, you know, so really had to cram an immersion into as many different angles as I could find about this because I didn't know how well the chess match itself whether it would be a good match or, or, or great or, or terrible. So the, there were a lot of moving parts there. I know um, uh, part of this, I, I, I think, um, from when I read the book, uh, was possibly going to center around you getting to have some access to Magnus Carlsen, right? 
um, and trying to understand um, who he really was. Um, and then that didn't happen. Uh, what was that like uh, for for you um, as a you know as someone you've got this nice book deal uh, and uh, a, a a big part of what you had hoped would be in that book um, just just doesn't happen. Well, I don't think it was an accident. There was a chapter with the most famous guy to do a runaround of a, an assigned story ever was one of the people that I interviewed, which was Gay Talese and Frank Sinatra. Um, Talese gives his five cents because he was somebody early on who interviewed Bobby Fischer when Fischer was just a kid and Talese was at the New York Times. Uh, so I, I wasn't sure. I've, had a, I've been very lucky and desperate in my attempts to get to sort of infiltrate big-name people and uh, have got some interesting gets over the years, you know, talking to Mike Tyson about being sexually abused for Amazon. It's the first time he'd ever been asked that in 25 years or 30 years of being a famous person or uh, doing some ghostwriting for Lance Armstrong. Uh, a lot of people in boxing, um, uh, Errol Morris talking about, you know, some early stuff with him to do with his father's death and sort of forensically combing the household where he grew up to sort of sort out who was his father. You can see traces of that, I think, in all of his work. This guy who's so famous for, you know, recreation as an effect. Um, it seems very logical that it would come from somebody that has all the artifacts of their father surrounding them. I think his father died when he was three. And then trying to recreate him through through reverse engineering what these objects are, these photographs and, and stuff, when you... You have no memories of this person who's so important to you. So I didn't have one conversation. I didn't exchange one word with Magnus Carlsen or his opponent for this entire book. So that's a big challenge. But I, I thought maybe there's some fun ways to read into him through this intimate corridor of spending six hours being 10 feet away from him behind glass, staring at his face doing such an immersive thing. I, I can't think of a more preoccupied person on the planet than not just a chess player, but a world champion chess player. And so it was a very interesting thing to just allow yourself to meditate on somebody's process who, on the one hand, is so close to you physically, but on the other seems more distant to you than just about anybody I've been around in my entire life. So I, I sought a, a very wide array of people to help speculate about what was going on with him from great chess players, from great chess writers, uh, other fields of obsession, uh, exploring mental illness, what it is to be a prodigy, uh, the tenuous connection or, or tender bond between genius and madness that certainly chess bears out with a lot of its greatest practitioners, um, and then obsession in a lot of other fields. Um, of, of creative endeavors, and uh, I've been a massive fan of obsessive geniuses all my life. So I saw elements of Bobby Fischer, certainly, in Magnus Carlsen, which, which he confirmed in some of his interviews. I saw a lot of Glenn Gould, back from my native Canada, in, in what he's doing. Is a, is a chess player more like a great composer? Magnus is compared to Mozart all the time, or is it more like a Glenn Gould who masters an instrument? You don't hear about a lot of creative types uh, writers who are writing 14 hours a day, 
it, it's something different. Whereas you hear great pianists all have to play eight or ten hours a day to get where they where they want to go. So there's a lot of things to to work with there that seemed like moving targets. And uh, I was very concerned that what I in, it, when I was putting together and trying to assemble would have a kind of coherent narrative to it that would be compelling as opposed to some sort of totally nebulous mosaic that people would say, what in God's name is this? This is just a mess um, or some kind of Rorschach test or something. So I had a lot of concern, but at the same time, I was having a lot of fun gathering stuff. I think one of the great things about the book, and I think this also goes for almost all all stories that have some element of um, sports or competition is um, you had this wonderful narrative arc, right? That you could could follow all the way through and then go onto these um, sidetracks while this, this extremely slow and tedious chess match is going on. It gives you these chances to um, uh, go back and give more context to what we're seeing, um, what we're reading, um, did you, knowing going in, uh, that you would use the entire length of the, the, the competition as the, the ultimate narrative structure? That's what I, that's what I was assigned. So there were basic things, um, you know, and that was a huge concern at the outset is when you get a for hire assignment, an editor gives it to you and has laid track to say, this is where you're going. This guy's amazing. This guy probably is the greatest ever to do what he's doing. This is his moment to bring chess back to what it was when Bobby Fischer had it on the front page every day in 1972, overshadowing uh, Watergate, overshadowing tens of thousands of Americans dying in Vietnam. This is even bigger, Bryn. Go do it. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is not bigger than 1972. Most people in New York don't know this is going on. Um, that's that statement is nice that he's better than Bobby Fischer because his rating is higher, but that's not how chess ratings work. And I had a, a grandmaster in the book who says, you know, my high school physics teacher is a more knowledgeable person about physics than Isaac Newton. It doesn't mean he's more talented. He's just had a lot more time right. to assemble information that if they were both here today and Isaac Newton knew what he knew then, um, and was competing against this guy, yeah, my, my high school physics teacher is going to be more capable. It doesn't mean he's objectively better. And there's something very similar. I mean, grandmasters in chess, you had five to start off with uh, 100 years ago. Now there's 1,600. Mm -hmm. So if you think about in any other game, if you're somebody who's ranked 1,600, you're a nobody, right? Right, <laughs> right. But, but these people, it's like the Knights of King Arthur roundtable when they enter the chess championships. And I'm thinking, like, I mean, I, I don't know. What, is this an important thing, or is this sort of more like meeting somebody who is wearing a T-shirt proclaiming that they're a member of Mensa? Right. If, like, what have you done with that intelligence? Well, obviously nothing that's more important than that you're a member of Mensa. It's a weird kind of thing. So I... I was very frightened at the idea of if this was a boring match or if objectively this was a match that really turned more people off than turned on. Um, and this is a match, let's remember, that of 12 games, 10 of them were draws. 
So, you know, six-hour draws, six hours of watching two 25-year-old kids nodding off in front of the chessboard. Um, you know, in, in New York, where I think any young people have a notoriously short attention span, this is not an easy sell. <laughs> so when when my editor is saying, go be Norman Mailer and cover Muhammad Ali and George Foreman in Zaire, I was kind of saying, well, I'm not Norman Mailer. Uh, Mangus Carlson is not Muhammad Ali, and Sergei Kiryakin is not George Foreman, and this event is not Zaire. <laughs> <laughs> so can we just can we just agree on those basic facts? We can have different opinions about how to approach this, but these these are facts. Mm-hmm. So there was uh, a lot there that was pretty stressful to confront because I I just didn't know where it would go, and I was stuck with it it does have to be the spine is coming from this. So, you know, that, that's a weird kind of challenge. It's different when you're looking back at something and you already know what it is. I, this was becoming what it was. And, and all the while I'm desperately trying to gain access and finding there's, uh, I say in the book, I, I would have a better chance of requesting an audience with Pope Francis than Magnus Carlson, and I don't know why. Yeah, you uh, for so much of your of your life, you've been writing about boxing uh, and also bullfighting. You've written uh, a, b- a bit about that, um, and so uh, it's it's interesting to to you know to think of you being asked to write about chess in the way that you would write about boxing. Right, right. Um, did you you know as a writer as a reporter, um, did you lean back on any of the stuff you did when you were writing about boxing? Um, or bullfighting, uh, when you sat down to actually start writing this book. Oh yeah, because I mean, I don't think I don't think with boxing I've ever really written much about the actual combat. It's the backstories of fighters. It's the backstories of people living at the extremes. You know, uh, I think there's just something about what's going on behind their forehead as they're processing. Um, an event where they're half naked and exposing themselves to millions or tens of millions of eyes around the world doing something that most of us spend our entire lives um, to some degree in terror of. And they have to make it natural. They have to, you know, flower into something that's memorable. Whereas, you know, as, as somebody who has taught boxing for a long time and, and used to do it, I came to boxing because being violently assaulted or, or humiliated was one of my biggest fears. And they, they all seem to come, the boxers that I've met, um, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, these are very gentle people who came from traumatic backgrounds. And this was their way of reclaiming respect and uh, trying to find a way out. And... At the same time, if they get really, really good at it, you know, these specialized areas of endeavor with with incredible amounts of competition, um, you're going to find people that it's not virtue that drives them. It's their their demons. And so in that way, it was very easy to find connective tissue between boxers and chess players or or bullfighters or, you know, any, any kind of endeavor that is seeking the world stage. It's just that chess is so remote. Um, that was the big challenge is what's, you know, it's like, I think 
Slavoj Žižek, who I enjoy a lot, makes this point that Freud isn't saying that sex is behind everything. He's saying that when we're having sex, why do we have to be thinking about something and what is it? Why can't we just sustain the act from the act itself? But no, it needs to be sustained by some kind of fantasy. And there's something about that with chess is what we think of these prodigies that we need to steer ki- our kids toward being prodigies. And I think it's a very silly thing. Um, nobody needed to prod Bobby Fischer to play chess or Glenn Gould to play the piano or Beethoven to compose. If anything, you have to try to restrain them from doing it because they're so obsessively driven. And in the realm of chess, this Gladwellian idea of 10,000 hours to become a genius is preposterous. These guys do 10,000 hours before they're 12 years old. It's indentured servitude from the age of four or five onwards. And there's no way to be competitive if you don't continue that kind of slavery to your craft um, all the way into your peak, which is normally in your mid to late 20s. And then there's a kind of decline in a similar way to boxers. Um, athletic prime, but we don't think of chess players as being great athletes, but try sustaining your concentration with somebody trying to disrupt the masterpiece you're creating and you're trying to destroy theirs. Try to do that for six hours right. against right. the world's best. It's really, really stressful. And so at times covering these two kids' faces trying to compose this and they're not talking and they're not touching each other, you know, engaging in any sort of combat but it's the most sadistic endeavor I've ever seen. And that's been a very common trope of elite athletes. Uh, they all have it to be at that level, is the level of sadism they have is off the charts. But we spin a different narrative to say it's something virtuous, but no, it's, it's a demon that's in their heart that's driving them towards this. Magnus Carlsen was a mercilessly picked-on kid, and this is an area where he can exact revenge on the scale of, of maybe maybe he can do it better than anybody who's ever been born. And he takes great, immense pleasure in that. And that was one of the things that uh, I think that my favorite reference point for this chess book was Harold Schoenberg, the music critic for the New York Times, who was also a chess obsessive. And boy, you look at the way he lays into Fisher, just saying, um, this this is blood sport this is blood sport and he is playing for keeps and it is more pleasurable for him to have his opponents commit suicide than it is even to murder them and when you'd see bobby fisher talking about that impulse when dick cabot says what's the home run in chess and he said oh it's watching my opponents you know shattering my opponent's ego it's crushing their ego he's not kidding and many of these people including him went nuts they completely broke down and he was thrilled at the prospect of that, thrilled at the prospect of having somebody totally emotionally, intellectually, spiritually cave in and be grinning and glaring at them 12 inches away as it happened. So I think once I kind of recognized that that stuff was real, I wasn't the only person to sort of uh, tap tap that, that vein of, of understanding that some others had before. It's just we don't like to think of it that way. Uh, it was no different to me than boxers or bullfighters where it's not just the murderous intent that's there sadistically, but it's the suicidal drive that's in there masochistically that these guys are risking that makes it so 
exciting and artful. Uh, you know, bullfighting, most people who are opposed to it, they see the murderous intent behind the blood sport. What makes it art for the people that appreciate it, and I'm not defending that they should appreciate it, is the suicidal impulse of a great artist who has to choose how much risk to take, that he's in more danger the better he is, which is unlike a lot of other sports. Muhammad Ali could take less risks the better he got. He only had to take those risks once he deteriorated physically and his um, you know, reflexes and speed slowed down. Then you could hit him, and then we saw something different of what made him great. So there, there's something to that with chess that I found very darkly compelling. Yeah. After reading the book, uh, I play a little bit of chess online with, with a college friend, and I, I, I lose all the time, but I've decided I'm never resigning. I'm never going to resign. I'm going to make him finish me off <laughs> in case he's getting that joy <laughs> of me having to actually resign. <laughs> so um, mm-hmm. you you are, are really good um, at having conversations with complete strangers, uh, I think, uh, when you're out there as a reporter. Um, and, and it shows both in the Domino Diaries um, as, as well as the Grandmaster. Has that always been easy for you? How do, how do you pull that off? Um, I was an absolutely terrible student, but when I look back on it, I have pretty pretty crystal clear recall of morning circle of kindergarten. And as the names were being, you know, we're doing morning attendance, I remember just naturally, I think, as a defense mechanism, si- sizing people up. Oh, he's the smartest. He's the, he's the most athletic. She's the most beautiful. He's the funniest. Um, you know, she she has something special that catches our eye. Oh, there's the artist, the guy who during painting class um, dazzles everybody. He's 10 times better than anybody else. And trying to figure out how, how these people worked. Where did they come from? What were the homes that they went back to? What were their, what were their parents' jobs? Um, I, I have a pretty good recall of kind of mapping out the lives of everybody I was surrounded with and finding that a hell of a lot more compelling than anything I was reading in the books themselves. So I was failing very early. I was at risk of failing a lot of courses, but I think um, really just delving into who these people were and who I was in relation to them, trying to sort that out. You know, who are we going to be outside of school? Uh, would we all become our parents? Would we become the opposite? Who were people attracted to? I just think I, I always had a real obsession about that, very early just in relation to other people and i'm just obsessively curious about people what motivates them so it's um i've been fortunate i you know i haven't had a tremendously lucrative <laughs> literary career but i've there's not much that separates my personal obsessions from my professional um i only really pursue the things that i'm i'm obsessive about because i don't I've never really, I don't really have casual interests. It really is just obsession. So um, chess was always something I was obsessed by. It began with, I could put a face on it really early with Bobby Fischer and trying to figure out what made him tick, what made him so compelling. So these are all people that sort of worship at the altar of what he did for chess in terms of you know maybe being the most famous person on earth and think about that that a chess player is the most famous person on earth the world is stopping to watch him play chess in iceland <laughs> against 
against the uh, Boris Spassky. So, um, you know, what, what have I, what have I written about? I, you know, I just wrote some article about an Irish whiskey that Conor McGregor is peddling. I, no, I'm not, I, I didn't have a drop of that whiskey because I don't want to drink whiskey. Mm-hmm. I don't really drink, <laughs> but I can do those kind of assignments, but almost every, I'd say 99% of what I've written about has been stuff that I'd be writing about even if I wasn't paid for it. Uh, so I think any, I think it's just collateral damage of people who are around these things that I'm obsessed by. I really, I'm desperate to find a new take, a new little gem. And very often, um, laymen uh, think for themselves in assessing and observing what they're looking at. And it's a much more interesting take than even people that are have given their lives to it. And I love the feeling of being taken somewhere new with something that I've been looking at for, for a long time or all my life. There's nothing more pleasurable than that. And it doesn't necessarily require any intelligence. It just requires a, a fresh point of view. So often the uneducated take can, can transform and offer like an entirely new paradigm. So I'm desperate for it. So you, as you see in the book, uh, I'm interviewing little kids, and some of them are chess prodigies themselves. Some of them are just little kids who showed up. Some, uh, some people are riding up the escalator who just say, I, I couldn't deal with chess. It was too stressful, so I turned to doing open-heart surgery. <laughs> right. How do you make that up? You can't. <laughs> right. You just can't. You, you could never make it up. And for him, it's the most matter-of-fact thing to throw out there. So I'm, I'm desperate for those kind of moments and... Uh, you know, having four hours interviewing Errol Morris, who's one of my favorite art living artists, it was the same for him. All the stories he wanted to tell were just these weird things where people let them have eight or nine minutes to talk about something. And they'll convince you they're crazy. And nothing is more fun than somebody stamping their own idiosyncratic, unique take on being crazy. Right. And I think, you know, I think basically everybody's crazy if you let them have 10 minutes to talk about anything they're passionate about or fervent about. So that's kind of my aim. And the one person who didn't really talk to you a whole lot was Gay Delise. No. (laughs) (laughs) He, he, uh, and no, he was, you know, and I left a lot out of that interview because, most of what he wanted to talk about was actually giving me relationship advice. And I didn't ask him for any, I wasn't saying to let's have a conversation about how I'm in a, a shitty relationship that <laughs> <laughs> right. that I need to find a way out of. But I'd say 90% of what he actually talked about was Bryn, you know, you, you just got your advance. This girl is 30 years old. If she, you know, what are you doing? You're not going to marry her. What, you know, you need to get out of that. You need to extricate yourself out of that. I'm not going to give you any money to do it. I'm not going to help you. But I, I didn't ask. What are we talking? I'm here to talk to you about Bobby Fischer and you seeing him when he was 13 years old. How did we get to my <laughs> setup? But but he's into his obsessiveness, right? Right, Which right, right. Solving my entire life in 45 minutes. <laughs> right. So, you know, okay, but... Uh, one of the weirdest characters I've ever met. And if you want to know everything you want to know about how Talese got where he did, I'll give you a very brief anecdote. He told me to meet him at a, a little a little Italian coffee shop, just just uh, let's see, southeast southeast of uh, Central Park. 
of the edge of Central Park. And I was waiting for a chair, and there was a lot of women with either children or pregnant women all sitting outside because it was sort of the first warm day toward the end of winter. And one by one, as a, a seat would come up, a pregnant woman would arrive or a woman with a newborn and would say, please let me just sit outside. Please, I need to sit outside. And I, I couldn't say no. So, of course, take, take, the, take the seat. So f- over 30 minutes, I'd missed three or four times to sit down outside to get, get the seat for Gay Talese, who I'd never met before. And <clears throat> Talese arrives. Of course, he's wearing this tremendous outfit of forest green tie and he's got a vest and, and <laughs> the matching hat with his belt buckle or whatever and i'm the least fashionable person in, on the planet and i can see him taking my measure on that front and when he arrives he said what the what the fuck are you doing like where's our seat he's a very vulgar person where's our fucking seat and i said well there's these women you see like they're sitting outside or whatever and he walks one by one to, when are you leaving you, okay, you're staying. Okay, you, are you, how long have you been here? Are you, you leaving anytime soon? And he got us a table immediately. I could never do that. I could never do that to anybody, let alone pregnant women, <laughs> women with two newborns or whatever. Police didn't flinch. And uh, I'm, I'm going inside, Bryn. What am I going to get you? I'm going to get you a coffee or what kind of pastry am I going to get? Do you take sugar with your coffee? And he comes back with a coffee I didn't order because I said I don't need anything <laughs> and a pastry I didn't order. And about 900 packets of sugar, <laughs> which I didn't ask for. So, you know, you could do a whole thing on Gay Talese, but I, that was my one meeting and probably my last meeting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm talking with uh, Bryn Jonathan Butler, author of The Grandmaster, Magnus Carlsen, and The Match That Made Chess Great Again. We're going to take a short break. We will be back in one minute. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University, which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Bryn Jonathan Butler about his new book, The Grandmaster, Magnus Carlsen, and the match that made chess great again. It was just released this week by Simon & Schuster. Bryn, you start uh, this book off with um, some of your own life and its relationship to chess. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about why you did that? Um, I think... I think I was really fascinated with chess. I, I, I was introduced to it very early when I was about three or four years old. Uh, my father had some major financial problems. There was a huge real estate crash in Vancouver. So the first house he bought after he became a child protection lawyer, he was paying something like 25% interest. And we lost the house, and 
my mother went to work at a, a little antique furniture shop. And um, when I went in to see her at work, I was sort of, it was the first time I'd ever been to an antique shop. And I was looking at all these incredible objects, having no idea about their history. And I, it was a magical place. I still love antique shops, just the smell. And as I was trying to gather evidence about which was the most desirable object in the back, I saw my mother was playing chess with the guy who owned the shop who had a glass eye. I'd never seen a glass eye before. So it was kind of a mystical little exchange on that front too. Of I'm like, should I stare? How does this work? And when I was looking at the chessboard and immediately responded that this was the object I, I found the most fascinating in the store. He offered to teach me to play and I, I'd love to learn how to play. I, I was playing board games at the time. I've always loved board games. And he gave me this warning that said, you know, be careful because if you play this game, you know, it might never let go. And I thought, what are you talking How can a, no board game is, is that addictive or dangerous? But maybe this one is. And how could that be? What is it about this object that makes it enchanted? And so we played, and I lost in what's called a fool's mate, which is the quickest way that one can lose a chess game. Two moves. And I could not believe how much it injured my pride, uh, my pride intellectually, my pride emotionally. It hurt. And it hurt in such a, an individualistic, idiosyncratic, um, there was this kind of undertow of just... Um, feeling worthless and feeling dominated and yet nobody's hurt me or anything. It wasn't, you know, getting pinched or slapped or, or punched around. It was just somebody's mind controlling you, controlling your moves and having nowhere to go, being totally trapped. And it was such a, such an indelible experience that I stayed away from chess for a long time after that. Anybody bring out a chessboard in an innocent way or, you know, a kind of playful way. Let's play, let's play. No way, I don't want anything to do with it. And when it came back into my life many years later, uh, when I was just turning 19 years old and meeting my uncle and family in Budapest for the first time, um, I, I did turn to it and, and became addicted to it for a couple of years and found that I couldn't write if I was playing chess. It seemed to sort of draw from the same well creatively that, that writing did, and I was an obsessive writer at that time, you know, writing a pile of unpublishable stuff. So I wanted to get that across to readers that here's where I'm coming from in my relationship to this game, and maybe this is way off the mark from where other people have experienced it, but I did have a sense of this kind of uh, duende that chess had, that it wielded, that um, made it kind of mystical, made it made it like a cursed kind of uh, pursuit, and and I found that on the one hand very enticing, and on the other frightening. Like how how does a board game have an undertow, or or kind of riptide emotionally? But it but it does. And the deeper and deeper I got into chess at the highest level with this book, and many of you know top players, top writers, and that kind of thing. Um, it, it was interesting that I just had this initial, uh, you know, like, 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 like how kids respond if a dog has bitten them 
before they have memory. Uh, you know, I mean, as they grow older, they forget that they were bitten, but they never forget it emotionally. And chess could do that for people. There's there, there were a lot of prodigies that I met that were great math prodigies, and the moment they played chess, they just gave up math altogether. And of course, nobody can make money playing chess, so it it becomes as much a struggle, not just with the game, an unfathomable game, but with the cold, cold hard reality that chess might be the only thing that capitalism looks at where 600 million people are doing it and it has no idea how to cash in on it. No clue after 1,500 years. So I don't know if that speaks to the virtue of chess or just how utterly inscrutable it must be. Right. Right. Um, I I noticed uh, that uh, one of the people that you dedicated the book uh, to was Glenn Stout. Um, Can you talk about that? Why, Why Glenn? I love Glenn, by the way, um, the best editor I've ever worked with uh, as a as a reporter. So, um, why why did you want to make sure he was one of the the people you dedicated the book to? Um, I think I think the spirit of Glenn is to be in the corner of everybody that I've ever heard of that he worked with. He's pulling for them, you know. He's he's really pulling for them, and and as you say, he's the best editor I've ever worked with as well, by far. And it's quite something to offer people that you support that they can reach 10 or 20 or 30% further than they would ever go on their own. They can reach for those things because they know he's going to help you to get there. I don't know how he does that. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't, there's nobody that I could support where I, I, I might be able to help them get closer to their potential, but I wouldn't have a clue how to begin to fathom how to help them reach beyond their potential um, with the things that they most want to do in the world to become the people that they most want to become. So I, uh, it's very easy to get um, emotional about it. He would hate that. but <laughs> right, he he, <laughs> He's going to hate me for even bringing up this question at all in the podcast. <laughs> Well, you know, here's the here's the easiest way to distill them for me is anybody that I know that that or anybody who wrote to me after reading a story saying, I'd love to I'd love to submit something to Glenn Stout. Do you think you could put in a good word for me? I said, there's no point. He doesn't give a shit who sends something in. If he likes it, if it's a good idea, he'll he'll run with it. He doesn't care where you come from. He doesn't care where you went to school. He's there's no elitist bet. It's totally anti-elitist it's as much a meritocracy except i'd say that he does root for underdogs yeah he does root for misfits you know he's pulling for you to make it and he's not pulling you for you to make it so he can then gain credit for helping you make it um he's just a real supporter i don't know of anybody who was a bigger advocate i mean look at the books he's written how how i don't think any writer out there has written more female protagonists than he has as a major focus. Uh, he, he was a huge advocate for pushing for women to break into the industry and minorities to break into the industry. Um, I just think he was a real supporter of people, and he really cared, and he always had a wonderful sense, of, I mean, still has, a wonderful sense of humor. And um, I, you know, there was... Last couple of years have not been easy with some stuff, and it's um, you know when you go into journalism, I, I think, or 
or publishing or whatever, and you're looking at it from the outside. I've been in New York 10 years now, but New York was a world away uh, from where I grew up in Vancouver. It was impenetrable. And you think maybe there's going to be some people that you're going to meet that you're, are going to be worth closing that distance, that are, you're going to find some writers who are going to be friends. You're going to find an editor like Fitzgerald found in Maxwell Perkins and that kind of thing. And I remember early on finally reaching some professional writers saying, you know, I'm looking for my Maxwell Perkins. And they say, you're a fucking idiot. There is no Maxwell Perkins. He's dead. <laughs> he, was, he was there once and he's dead. I, I found mine with Gwen Stout. I'd rather have Gwen Stout than Maxwell Perkins because I just, I just had so much fun working on stuff and I had so much fun seeing what he was offering other people. And it made, even, even as this industry, which I think is struggling a lot, and maybe it's a dying industry, at least as far as um, economically attaining sustenance, it's really hard. Uh, I certainly can't do it on my own with just writing. I have to teach boxing uh, in Central Park and that kind of thing. But uh, he's somebody who was always trying to assist the ecosystem for people. And I, I just really, uh, you know, immensely admire that. And and I noticed that as you feel like you're in survival mode and somebody asks you for the name of an editor or, you know, a writer to get in touch with, and you know it's just political. They don't give a shit about you. It's just trying to reach somebody to get in there. I've never said no to anybody. I've never said no to anybody. Here's my editor's email address. Right. Yes, I'll put in a good word for you or whatever. Why do I do it? Not because I'm a good person. Not because I'm generous. Not because I feel like I'm safe in my place. I'm totally replaceable. You know, so it, I do it because that's the spirit that he instilled in me. Whenever you'd ask for help from him about somebody to talk to or whatever, he'd always say yes. And I want to, you know, in my little way, give back to that. Anybody needs help for something, I will always say yes. Why? Because enough people said yes to me, and through their generosity, I was able to live in New York for nine years. Not live well but live here and that's all i wanted from it but i'm only was i only was able to do that not through the strength of my talent or my ambition or efforts but through the generosity of others so there's there's no choice i have but to pay that back and nobody was more instrumental in that than him not just for me but for many 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 people so it was a very small little bit of recognition of just a, a debt Right, right. You mentioned um, teaching boxing in Central Park, of, of which there was a New York Times story about you doing that um, about maybe a year ago, maybe? Um, uh, two years ago. Two yeah. years ago. Um, boxing, you know, I've mentioned the Domino Diaries um, several times uh, in our conversation, which was your, your previous book, um, uh, which obviously deals with Cuba, but also with boxing, your own boxing life. Um can you talk a little bit about what that book is about? And, and then also, like, how was it the writing process different to um, for the Grandmaster versus a memoir? Yeah. Um, well, it's funny because I started writing fiction for a long time and wrote probably a million words before I was paid for one and still haven't been paid for any of those words of fiction because maybe they weren't any good. I don't know. But... Behind the scenes, um, you know, I was working some weird, odd jobs along the way, but all the money I had was, was put towards going to Cuba and 
being trained by Olympic champions and uh, indulging in my total fascination with what Cuba was from the first time I went in 2000 until what I thought was the last time I'd be able to go, which was when bin Laden was killed in 2011 in May. So at some point, I think about 2006 or 2007, uh, I jotted down some notes just as an exercise about what I was seeing in Cuba while I was there wandering around Havana. And I was posting them on social media to friends because I internet was really expensive there. So I didn't have time to individually email people. I would just sort of like a group email. Like I think Facebook had a thing called notes. And so my task was I'd get up at four in the morning, walk to a hotel where there was internet access. It was like 10 bucks an hour. And for that hour, do nothing but write here with yesterday and post it. And all of these people said, why on earth are you writing anything else but this? This is, this is, crazy that you would write about anything other than what's going on in Cuba right now. Don't you, don't you see that? And I didn't see that because what's interesting about some kid who's not an important boxer, learning to box, um, trying to figure out this bizarre island <laughs> 90 miles away from the United States. And, um, you know, I'm not doing anything special there. I'm just observing, you know, just observing and talking to people that's not a worthy memoir. That's not an exciting journey. But um, I think I think I published something in Salon, which they don't pay for. Um, right. And and there was an editor who reached out to me, a young kid named named Peter, and uh, he just said, "Is there a book here?" You know, Peter Horosco. And I said, "Well, I I don't know. What are you looking for?" And in the end, uh, another offer came from Random House to do a biography about one of the boxers that I was writing about. And that Peter Horosco from Picador got into a conference call where there was a very, very, I don't, I, it's not a bidding war, but there was a discussion from different publishers about if there was interest in this book. And my agent at the time said, just need to let you know, the only thing anybody's going to be interested in is this Cuban boxer who defected, who Fidel Castro said was a traitor and all that. Nobody is going to give a flying fuck about you in the story. So just don't take it personally, but it's not a memoir that anybody's going to want here. <laughs> and the first person who got on the line was Peter, and he just said, we at Picador don't know anything about Cuba, and we don't know anything about boxing. The only thing we're interested in is why some kid from Vancouver would go to Cuba and take this incredibly bizarre journey. If you want to write that book, we're in. Mm -hmm. But if you want to do the boxing thing or something or a biography of some boxer, we don't know anything about that. And the agent just laughed and, and off, off we went. And that was the perfect kind of setup because Unfortunately, it was marketed as a boxing book. There's no boxing in right, the book. Right. There's characters who are boxers, but you're not hearing about any boxing history. You're not hearing about, um, you know, the records of people or a blow by blow of any important fights. It's just the central question of Cuba for me was, how does a place like this exist? <laughs> this should never exist. Mm -hmm. And how do so many of these people wish to remain despite living 
lives where happiness cannot be defined in a materialistic way, where you're forced to find fulfillment and happiness through a means other than money. And so I saw a lot of pain, and I saw a lot of joy, and I saw this whole spectrum from a humanist perspective of the most alive place I'd ever seen. And all I'd been warned about was how much incredible poverty I would see. And what I saw was that was true in the financial sense. Everywhere else, it was the richest place I'd ever seen in my life, infinitely more so than where I came from, which, according to a lot of ratings, is the most, quote-unquote, livable city in the world. Well, in what, what respect is it livable? You know, how do we measure these things? What are our metrics for these things? How is there a general metric for what's livable? You right, know, right. It, it raised a lot of interesting questions. And being a real sucker for art, and Van Gogh in particular, and I'm certainly not alone with his, you know, his story, which is a kind of love letter or suicide note at the same time, I thought, well, if everybody's obsessed with how this guy could spend nine years pumping out most expensive expressions of art on the planet in the planet's history and couldn't sell any of them. All these Cuban athletes are doing something similar on their own canvases or baseball fields, you know, boxing canvases. Um, but they're saying, no, they're not trying to sell it. Van Gogh was trying to sell it and failed, but these guys are, are saying, no, we stand for something bigger. And a principled objection to capitalism is not really permitted. You have to be brainwashed. And what I thought was, what does that say about us? That you're not allowed to have a principled objection to anything. What does it say about a country that bans books like Cuba? It says that books are dangerous, mm -hmm. that books are so valuable that they could corrupt people in a place where the literacy rate is higher than anywhere else, in a place where the president is best friends with Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and at file for his insurrection says who is intellectually responsible for this insur insurrection and he quotes a poet <laughs> so i was i was dazzled by these kinds of contradictions and you know was allowed to wander into this compressed version of 11 years there um creating some composites with people and some of the events that i saw but but the basic breakdown would be it was five and a half years of what Cuba was like while I was there, while Fidel was present. And then it was five and a half years there after Fidel had stepped out. Mm -hmm. And and then concluding, oddly enough, when bin Laden is assassinated and because of the Cuban state media, nobody knew that he had been assassinated, which was quite interesting. And of course, Cuba was a place that Che Guevara, uh, Cuba had made Che Guevara famous, Che Guevara, at his peak, was also the FBI's most dangerous man, as was bin Laden. So it was quite something to see a New Yorker cheering bin Laden's death while wearing a Che Guevara T-shirt, who was on record as saying he would have loved to use nu nuclear weapons against not just the United States, but against New York in particular. So again, just endless contradictions that I thought would be really fun to explore, not looking for answers, just looking at questions. Well, that is also, uh, The Domino Diaries is also a very, uh, very good book that uh, you all should check out. Bren, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's It's been great talking with you. Thanks so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. Bren Jonathan Butler is the author of The Grand Master, Magnus Carlsen, and The Match That Made Chess Great Again. 
It has just been released this week by Simon & Schuster. I've been talking with Brand Jonathan Butler. He's the author of The Grand Master, Magnus Carlsen, and The Match That Made Chess Great Again. The book is being published by Simon & Schuster and will be available on November 6th. As usual, we've linked to that book and other work that Butler has done on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.